Good morning. It's a great day to be together in the presence of God, our God. It's a great day to enjoy his presence, to hear his voice, to give him honor and praise and glory. It's a great day to be alive in Christ. We're going to be talking about that today. Uh, we began a series, this is the third week of a series we are calling Grace Wins. We've been talking about what grace is, what it means, what it looks like, um, what God has done for us, all of that kind of stuff. And we're going to be unpacking that for the next couple of months. Today I want to start um, with a sermon I've entitled, But God. I want to start that with uh, telling a little bit of my story. Uh, I became a Christian my junior year at Tufts University. I went from being an, an atheist, uh, following the script that I had written for my life, to a believer who was trying to follow the script that Jesus wrote for my life. About three months after I became a Christian, I, I had a vision. It's the one and only time in my life that I've had a vision and that it was anything like this. I had just come out of a class. And I was walking across the campus. I was walking behind Balu Hall. There's a green there going down toward the lower campus. I was walking across that green. It was a beautiful spring day. You know, one of those days where it's bright and it's shiny and it's uh, sunny rather. And it's warm, but there's a breeze. Just a perfect, perfect, perfect New England spring day. And lots of people were out. Lots of, lots of students were out there. Some of them were pretending to study. But most of them just kind of giving up on that. You know, they were sitting around. They were listening to music. They were laying out in the sun. They were playing frisbee. They were just having a good time. And so I'm walking across the green and I'm seeing all this and I'm enjoying the sun myself when all of a sudden I was just kind of struck. I had this vision that flashed across my brain. It was like a neon sign. And the sign said, walking corpses. Walking corpses. And, and I didn't know what to do. I just froze. And Somehow, I'm not sure how, I sensed that what God was saying is, Lou, look around you. All these people, all these students having fun, basking in the sun, playing frisbee. All of them, they're alive. They're physically alive, but they're really dead. They are so far from me. They are very far from me. And I knew that what God was saying is that, to me was that you have been made alive. And I'm calling you to make known to the people around you what I have done for you. Call them to life in me. And I remember going home, going back to my dorm room, and just falling on my face, just calling out to God. Praying and praying, praying. And then I got up, and God had put three names in my head, three friends, and I went to see them that night. I went to see them, and they were really good friends. I love these guys, but they were really far from God. When I went to see them, they were doing lines, cocaine lines, and I was trying to tell them about Jesus, and they were just laughing at me. And I just didn't know what to do but to pray. But here's what happened over the next year and a half. All three of those guys came to faith along with about 15, 16 other friends of mine who came to faith. 
It was something that God did. And so what happened that day in that vision, if you will, I'm not even sure if I can call it a vision. I just don't know what else to call it. What happened was that God just kind of redirected my life. I had planned my life to go this way. And God says, no, I want you to go this way. It was my call, really, to ministry. It's been shaping my life since then. Thanks be to God. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 today, verses 1 to 13. And what I saw in my vision is really what Paul is talking about in this passage in, in Ephesians. He's talking about walking corpses that need to be made alive and about the eager grace of God to raise them up, to save them. And that's what I want to, to try to help us to understand and truly believe this morning. That's who we were, and this is what God is doing in our life. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, it's on page 827 in our pew Bibles. Okay? As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the power of air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
So here's the summary of what I'm going to talk about this morning. Paul says that we were all walking corpses. We were spiritually dead, corrupt in our sins, ruled by the devil, under God's just condemnation and wrath. But God, because of his irrepressible, unquenchable, unbounded love, intervened. God intervened to save us. We're no longer dead, no longer corrupt, no longer enslaved, no longer condemned. Now we are made alive, made new, made free. We are made welcome before God's throne and in God's family. So let me begin to unpack all of that. Paul says three things. That, that were once true of us. He says that we were, number one, spiritually dead. We're physically alive, but spiritually dead. We didn't know God, didn't want to know God, didn't want God to be part of our lives in any real way. We were dead to God. We, he, he, God was blind to us. We were deaf to his voice. We were cold to his love. And it wasn't just that once in a while we made mistakes or that now and again we had moral failures. We were marked by disobedience to God and engaged in a lifestyle of rebellion against him and against his holy law. We were separated from Christ. We were hostile to God's people. We were cut off from God's promises. And we were without hope and without God in the world, Paul says. We were dead. Two, Paul says, we followed the desires, the cravings of our earthly nature. We were, we just did that. Now what Paul is saying here is that we were corrupt in our sins. He's not saying they were completely corrupt. He's saying that we're, all of us are contradiction. Pascal Blaise Pascal in his Ponsais calls us a chimera, this, this mythical creature, half human, half monster. He says, that's really kind of who we are morally. We're capable in the same day of doing something beautifully kind, gracious, and good, and, and then a little bit later doing something just cruel or mean, hard-hearted, stupid. That's who we are. We're a chimera. We're a contradiction. We're corrupted. So some definitions here. When he talks about the ways of the world, when Paul talks about the ways of the world, what he's saying is that the ways of the world refer to the motivations, the ambitions, the drives, the goals, the lifestyles that often move the people in our world. The self-centered things that uh, culture endorses and values and pursues. Our flesh doesn't refer to our human bodies. It refers to our fallen human nature and it's set in contrast to our spiritual nature by Paul. Our nature, our Christ nature when we're redeemed in Christ. And in the cravings of our flesh, this isn't just about lust or greed like we often think. It's about making yourself the center of your life, feeding and flaunting your own ego and pride and ambition, living your life for your own comfort and pleasure above the interests and good of other people. Let me give you an example. 
One of the first passages that I ever memorized after I became a Christian was from Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. And at the time, this was in 1975, memorized and revised standard version. It goes like this. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practice steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. And it's in these things that I delight, says the Lord. And I remember reading that. And when I read it, it just, it just caught me. It actually put me on my face because Paul was describing who I was, what I did. My whole life up to that point, I'd been living for myself. I trusted myself, boasted in myself, my own accomplishments, my own intellect, my own work ethic, my own status, all of that kind of stuff. I wanted to be first and be recognized for it. I wanted to make a name for myself, for myself. I was motivated by pride, by ego, by self-centered ambition. That was me. In other words, I was following the ways of this world, gratifying the desires and thoughts of my flesh. Walking corpses boast in themselves. People made alive in Christ boast about God and his grace. People walking Christ understand and know him. They delight in his truth, his justice, his righteousness, his love. God used that passage to shape my life, to stir my life, steer my life. So we were dead, number one. Two, we were corrupt. Number three, we were enslaved by the devil, Paul says. The prince of the power of the air is the devil. And he's the one behind all the evil, corruption, and brokenness of the world. He's behind it. He doesn't do all of it. So there's a few things we need to know, you need to know about the devil. He's real. He's deceitful. And he's dangerous. He manipulates minds. He controls wills. He lures us into disobedience to God, into a life dominated by our own selfishness and willfulness. He's a liar. He's a seducer. He's an agitator. The devil is an accuser. He's an, ex an exploiter. And he most definitely is a destroyer. He's your enemy. He's your enemy because he hates everything that God loves. And what God loves, whom God loves, is you. He loves you. The devil hates you for it. But there's two really important things you really know you really need to know about devil. More important than all of that. The first thing is that he's not all powerful. He cannot make you do what you do not want to do. He cannot make you do what you do not want to do. He's not all powerful. And two, he is both dethroned 
and defeated. He is active still, but his power is broken. It was broken by Christ on the cross. Mark 5, verses 1 through 20, describes an encounter that Jesus had with a demon-possessed man. Man possessed by a legion of demons. Here's what Andrew Wilson says about this passage. Suddenly, we see ourselves in this man. He is unclean, impure, an outsider, unable to access the presence of God. So were we. He lives among the tombs, surrounded by death, naked, without hope, and without God. So did we. He's oppressed by the powers of darkness, trapped in pain and brokenness, beyond the reach of any human power. So were we. But then he meets Jesus, who not only sets him free from the devil's tyranny, but humiliates his enemies and our enemies by driving them into the depths of the sea. He's restored to his right mind and clothed in new garments. He is visibly transformed by the encounter such that those who had known him before come to fear the power of Jesus. He's desperate to follow his new master and savior. As the story closes, he's given a new mission to return to his community and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So are we, says Andrew Wilson. He's dethroned and defeated. He's made us alive. That's what Paul says. He says that God decisively, definitively, irrevocably intervened to save us. God, out of his love and the richness, the riches of his mercy, made us alive in Christ. He, made, he raised us up with Christ. He seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. He united us with Christ. What Paul is doing is here is he's trying to explain the new reality that God in Christ is birthed in the world. The old reality was that we were all those things, dead, corrupt, so forth. We were separate from Christ. The new reality is that through Christ's death and resurrection and ascension by the Holy Spirit, the new reality is that we are united with Christ. We are in Christ and Christ by the Holy Spirit is in us. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. A new reality came into the world. And Paul is trying to explain this and there are no available words, words to explain this new thing that God has done. No words that are adequate. So Paul needs to come up with new language. New words to explain this new thing, this new reality that God has birthed. Now, if I ask you, any of you, to say, have you ever heard the words, you know, internet or network? You say, 
Well, of yeah, of course. What kind of question is that? Right? But here's the thing. Less than 50 years ago, less than 50 years ago, which I know for some of you seems like six lifetimes ago, but for some of us, it kind of seems like yesterday. It's living memory. Less than 50 years ago, those words did not exist. They did not even exist. In the early 70s, around the early 70s, a new reality was birthed in our world. The interconnected web of, you know, Computers, network computers, oh, that, that was new and changed the way we live our lives today. A new reality needed new words. Paul is facing a new reality. He needs new words. He coins three new words. And you're not going to remember the words in Greek, so just remember this. That the big deal with these three words, he combines several Greek words to say that we were literally co-made alive with Christ co-raised up with Christ, co-seated in heavenly realms with Christ. The key word for us right here is with, with Christ and all these things. And that word with, it's a small word, but it's a powerful word in this case. We are united with Christ, Paul says. Christ lives in us. We can live the Christ life with Christ. God made you alive with Christ. The life that is in Jesus is now by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, with us. That life is in you. That's why Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ in life. I now live I, the, I have been crucified to Christ and I, no, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. If you're in Christ, Christ lives in you. He is with you. That's the big idea. What Christ has, you have. What access to the Father, Christ has, you have. You have that access. What status before the Father, Christ has, is your status. In Christ, we have a new capacity, a new energy, a new power to live the Christ life. The character that is in Jesus is not beginning to be formed in you. The things that Jesus cares about are things that you begin to care about. God seems close and personal. He used to feel far away. He used to feel distant and cold. Now you can sense his love. You can experience his forgiveness. You can talk to him in prayer. You can hear his voice. And when you think you're hearing his voice, when you hear him talking back to you, you know that you're not crazy. It's just not nuts. It's actually happening. Your conscience is being awakened. Things that you did that never used to bother you, well now they bother you at least a little bit. You don't want to do all the things you used to do. You don't want to lie. You don't want to lose your temper with someone. You feel bad about it. Your conscience, bother, conscience bothers you when you hurt or offend someone. You used to be 
really, 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 really selfish. But now, now, you're just selfish. <laughs> your, your desires are changing. The Bible used to be really confusing and boring. I mean, who wants to read the Bible, right? But now there are times when it, you're reading it and it just seems to jump off the page and grab you by the throat. Church services used to feel long and dry. Used to, you know, you couldn't wait to get out of the service when your parents made you go, maybe. But now there are times when you really want to come and participate in a worship service. Times when you actually want to sing praises to God out loud. Even when the worship song, you know, particularly for, for us guys, even when the worship song, song is about love and it seems a little bit kind of mushy, you know? Not the kind of language you use in the rest of your life maybe. And for some of you guys, there may even be a time or two when you get a tear in your eye. You know, because you got a bit of dust in it, right? You know? Your desires are changing. Your heart's changing. We were raised up with Christ, and that's what's happening. We are raised up to a new life. A new power at work in us. And then Paul says, we were enslaved by the devil, but now we are seated with Christ. We are seated with Christ. Christ has freed us. What this means, this seated with Christ idea, is that Christ completed his work on the cross. His sitting down means that he's done and it was a total victory. He's seated on the throne of power and of authority. God the Father seated Christ above every name and power and placed all of Christ's enemies under his feet, under Christ's feet. And in Christ, all believers are seated with him on that throne of power. We are seated on the throne with him. The absolute, infinite, unfathomable, irresistible power that resurrected Jesus from the dead, that's the same power that raised you up with Jesus. And you have access to that power. You have access to Christ's power and authority. You're no longer helpless to resist the temptations of the world or the cravings of the flesh, the rule of Satan. You have a new power within you, God's resurrection power. The Holy Spirit is within you. You're now free to live the life God created you to live. Abundant life, eternal life in the here and the now. We are with Christ. I want to say this. Please hear this. For those of you who have not yet turned your life to Christ, know that God's grace, God's power is available to you right now. You can ask Christ to come into your life, to come to you and be with you. You can ask in the quietness of your mind and of your soul right now. 
And Christ will come to you. He will fill you. He will transform your life. He'll begin it right now. If you invite him in, surrender your life to him and to his plan and purpose for you. I invite you to do that if you haven't done that yet. We are seated with Christ right now if we're in Christ in the heavenly realms. We're no longer condemned by God. We're seated with Christ in the presence of God the Father. Now, the opposite of condemnation is not just acquittal or forgiveness here. It is full, the opposite of condemnation is full acceptance into God's inner circle. Full acceptance into God's family. That's what it means to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And then Paul just kind of summarizes all this. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. Not, no one can boast in themselves. Salvation is from beginning to end a work of God's grace. We are made alive with Christ, raised up with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, united with Christ. None of this is something we can do for ourselves. All of this, all of these verbs that Paul used, they're all in the past tense, something that God has already done for us in Christ. It's entirely God's gift to us. Entirely God's work on our behalf. God made us alive with Christ, Paul says, even when we were dead in our sins, in our sinfulness. We didn't stop sinning and then God saved us. We didn't clean up our act and then God cut us a break. That's not what happened. We were dead in our sins. We were corrupt in our very nature. We were hostile to God, enemies of God, under the devil's rule. It was in all of that that God intervened and saved us. God has not given us what we deserve. He has given us grace. God's grace is unearned. It's undeserved. It's unaided. It is God's favor to us despite human disobedience and corruption and rebellion. We have been saved simply and purely by God's grace alone. Grace is motivated by the love of God. It is the expression of God's character. It's entirely the work of God. It is the absolutely free, lavish gift of God. It's God's will and purpose, his good pleasure for us. This is what God really, really, really wants to do. He's not doing it begrudgingly. He really wants to do this and has done it. Now here's the thing. God's grace is freely given to us. But it didn't come cheap to God. It cost him the life of his son. And the son, the son went willingly to the cross to die in our place. Jesus went to the cross willingly. He allowed himself to be stretched 
on that cross to be broken for our sins. Why? Because he loves us. Grace is given freely, but it does not come cheap. The debt that we owed, Jesus paid. The death we deserved, Jesus willingly received. Paul says we are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the conduit of grace. Faith is a channel by which salvation flows to us. Every morning I get up, I shave, I get in the shower. The water pipes leading to my shower are the channels by which the water flows to me. They're the channels by which water flows to me to cleanse me, to clean me up. Faith is the vessel by which grace is received. After my shower, the first thing I do is go downstairs, put on a pot of coffee. Uh, I, I brew the coffee. I get a mug, a big mug, and fill it with coffee. I use the mug to enable me to receive, to drink the coffee, to receive the coffee. Faith is what enables me to receive, to access God's grace. Faith does not cause God's grace. It doesn't earn God's grace. It just enables us to receive the grace that God freely offers. And here's the thing again. It doesn't matter how big a mug of grace you need. God has enough grace, more than enough grace, to fill however much grace you need, the mug of however much grace you need. It doesn't matter how dirty you are, how big a pipeline of grace you need. God's grace keeps flowing. It just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing to cleanse you and me. It's inexhaustible. God's grace is inexhaustible. Faith itself is God's gift to us. It's not what we contribute to God, but what God contributes to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Works do not earn or cause salvation, but salvation necessarily causes good works. That's how Paul closes verse 10. Good works are not a condition or cause of salvation, but a consequence of salvation, of being saved. Now, Paul uses an interesting word here. He says we are God's handiwork. The word handiwork is a Greek word, poema. It's the word we get from which we get our English word poem. We are God's poem. We're God's poem. It's also, poem is also the word that, became, that can be used as a work to mean a, a, a work of art. And then it came to mean ultimately a masterpiece of art. We are God's masterpiece, Paul is saying. You are God's masterpiece, created to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do. Now, the source of your good works is God's work in you. God's power is at work in your life, shaping you, molding you into the image of Jesus Christ. As God shapes your life more and more, you reflect his character and his purpose. As you do the good works God created you to do, people begin to see something of God in you. 
as you reflect God's character through acts of love and mercy and grace and truth and justice and righteousness, you radiate God's glory. Your life matters to God. It makes a difference in Christ. There are things you are called to do that no one else is called to do. Things that only you can do, nobody else can do. God in Christ has transformed you, is transforming you. You are God's unique masterpiece. If we are in Christ, we are each of us, all of us, an in-progress masterpiece of God's grace. We are an in-progress masterpiece of God's grace. And what God has begun by grace he will complete and perfect by grace to his glory, to our great good, and to the joy of our world. Let me close again with this. Grace comes free of charge to people who do not deserve it. And I, I am one of those people Grace comes free of charge to each of you too. If you want to receive it, if you have not yet responded to God's grace by entrusting your life, surrendering your life to Jesus, today can be your day. Today can be your day. I, in Jesus' name, I invite you to come to Jesus. I, I actually beg you to surrender your life to Jesus' love, to Jesus' purpose. Letting, let him make of your life a masterpiece of grace. Let's pray.